Welcome. Hi, I'm Mickey, and this is Wikipedia, where I sit down and chat to doctors, professors, athletes, practitioners, and experts in their fields related to health, nutrition, fitness, and well-being. And I'm delighted that you're here. Morning, everyone. Welcome to Wikipedia Wednesday. Obviously, I am Mickey, and I am stoked to bring to you today the conversation that I had with sort of almost like a hero of mine, so ridiculous, but it's so true, Um, Professor Stuart Phillips from the Department of Kinesiology from McMaster University. Stu is a professor in the Department of Kinesiology and a Tier 1 Canada Research Chair in Skeletal Muscle Health. He is the Director of the Physical Activity Centre of Excellence and the McMaster Centre for Nutrition, Exercise and Health Research and Lab Lead for the Exercise Metabolism Research Group. Now Stu's research is focused on the impact of nutrition and exercise on human skeletal muscle protein turnover and he is keenly interested in diet and exercise-induced changes in body composition. Just like me, except I'm not a professor of protein metabolism like he is. Stu believes that a little bit of exercise is better than no exercise and aims to encourage more physical activity in older adults. And this is an area that he's super passionate about and we get into in this uh, uh, chat that I have with Stu and also those protein recommendations for older adults and what his opinions are and sort of where they sit. He has more than 24,000 career citations and 220 original scientific research and review papers. So he certainly got all of the academic cred behind him, but also a real practical approach to how he talks about nutrition and exercise and recommendations for people. Now, Just before we hit play on this interview, just want to remind you that if you're looking for ways to support the podcast, which I know many of you have reached out and told me that you would like to, head over to my website, sign up to my recipe only access on the portal, which is 12 bucks a month. It's basically cheaper than Netflix, but you get a host of amazing recipes. You get access to a private Facebook group with uh, Facebook Lives, weekly forums, you get weekly emails. You're able to access me at any time during the messaging system in the portal. And it is, as I said, a really good way to not just support the podcast, but for you, if you want some fresh ideas, awesome for you as well. So now let's get on to my conversation with Professor Stu Phillips. Good morning, Professor Stu Phillips, coming to me from what your basement or something? Yeah, coming locked in bunkers. Yeah, you mean coming from my office? No, yeah, coming from my basement. (laughs) It's it's been my my office away from. Uh, from work uh, for over a year now so yeah and not that this is a conversation about COVID but I have to say I too am a little bit disappointed by Canada because normally in New Zealand and Canada like we're the places that people want to be but <laughs> yeah, it's just I, us I've often, I've often said that uh, I find either and, and I know this is a slight to, to Kiwis everywhere but I say if I go to Australia or New Zealand I actually feel as a Canadian and maybe it's just you know a Commonwealth country very comfortable showing up and I always feel like we're on the same vibe politically and everything 
but COVID wise, uh, yeah, we, we have not done a, a, a great job, but, uh, we're getting there. We're, we're doing better. Yeah. Um, yeah. Stu, I have followed you for a number of years and you've always been so gracious with any of the questions that I've fired to you on Twitter, because you must get like numerous people kind of hitting you up for protein related uh, information. <laughs> and um, I suppose you don't have much better to do other than sit on Twitter these days. So you're, so, but thank you for that. I hope that that part of it continues. Um, My so when I, when I told people that I was like reaching out to you to come onto the podcast, they were stoked and I got a bunch of questions All right. because it feels like to me, people talk about kind of, you know, diet wars. Um, but I've got to say around protein, it's sort of emerging now as something that more mainstream that people are beginning to consider it a little bit more. And there are, there do tend to be sort of, if I say extremes, it's like you've got people in this longevity field that suggests that low protein is the way to go. And then you've got the the people in the physique arena, if you like, who that's the thing that they focus on. And as a practitioner, I'm definitely an advocate for protein in in the diet and having adequate amounts and, and things like that, based a lot on, you know, the information that you've put on, uh, put out there over the years. But with the questions I got, I definitely saw that there is a lot of confusion around that. Mm. Yeah, it is. I mean, it's confusing. And, and um, I think when I first started this, you know, we were focusing on questions around how much protein. And then, you know, for a while, the pendulum sort of seemed to swing and it was more than we we're advocating with the, you know, the, 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 R, the RDI or whatever, you know, anagram you use to describe your protein requirements. And now it's sort of, you know, so that was okay. And then now people I find are pushing back, which is sort of in line with a lot of other macronutrients as well. So yeah, it's only yeah. protein's turn this time around. But yeah, fair enough. Yeah, true. You know, if I'm looking at the social media space or maybe the public health space as well, actually, um, I often see the message that people eat too much protein. Mm. And I think about that and think, well, that might only be in relation to what the recommended dietary intake suggests yeah. is that protein intake. Can you kind of kick us off, Phil, by, by telling us what is the disconnect, if there is one, between recommended dietary intake and actual protein uh, requirements? Yeah, so I could probably, you know, whether it's the RDI or the RDA, or it's, so the first word in both of those is the, the one that kind of gets me is first it says it's recommended. and so. Mm. You know, I was I would be fine if it just said minimal, like MDI, minimal dietary intake or minimal dietary allowance or something like that. So, I it's it's on the low side uh, as far as mm -hmm. I'm concerned. Uh, it's all established around a methodology called nitrogen balance, uh, which we've known for well, I mean, you know, decades now. There's problems with the methodology, so I don't think the methodology that underpins the determination for requirements is that good. But it's often said, well, but we have a lot of data on this. And I'm like, well, that doesn't mean that we should use that methodology. So suffice to say that to me, at least, that's the sort of minimal intake. And that's why I say, yeah, everybody should try and get at least this. And then from mm -hmm. there up is where I think we begin to see benefits. And the only way I explain it to people to give it some context is to say, when we first started setting RDIs and RDAs, 
it was right after the Second World War, and it was to prevent deficiency. So, mm. you know, I always used to like, you know, saying vitamin C, we needed this much to prevent people from getting scurvy. But now we know that actually eating a little bit more than that is actually quite good for you. And so we've revised, you know, the, the intake levels, but no such thing has ever happened for protein. It's sort of vacillated up and down, but it's kind of stuck at this around 0.8, 0.85, something like that. It doesn't matter where you go in the world. Mm. And is it political? Like, because protein relates to meat and, you yeah. know, well, big dairy, I, I think, et cetera. I think there are pressures on on that level that are that are political around uh, mainly when you talk about uh, agencies that provide food aid to food insecure regions, you can imagine if this was the level where they said, you know, the benefits begin, um, but actually we should really be giving you this much. And of all of the macronutrients, protein is the most expensive. So um, you can, you, you, there are some some factors that influence that recommendation that are not just nutrition, I think nutritionally driven and uh you know, uh, people like Jeff Simpson and uh, David Rabenheimer made it the same type of point. So it's not not just me sort of spouting off philosophy, but I think others have have made a similar observation. Mm. And so that RDA or RDI, as you say, is set around say 0.8 grams per kg body weight. Um, a lot of your research of late seems to be uh, in relation to um, the aging population and mm-hmm. trying to prevent kind of disease of aging and being as healthy as we can for as long as we can. So, what are some of the um, some of your findings, Stu, with regards to the requirements and what you've seen is actually you know optimal? Yeah. Uh, so, so my my first writer statement is. I always say to people, you know, there's there's probably a lot of things you can do to age successfully. And uh, the biggest one, and I'm fond of saying this, is that you got to be physically active. It's it's mm-hmm. hard to out-diet physical inactivity. You can probably out-activity a poor diet, although not completely. Um, so as long as you're physically active, I think that the research that not just ourselves, lots of other groups have done would suggest that protein intakes that are at least 1.2 grams per kilo. So about, you know, 50% higher than the current RDA and then upwards to about 1.6. And that's where I think the sort of the benefits begin to, to level off. And not that you can mm. eat more than that. You, you, you can, uh, if you so choose, I just don't think that the benefits come back in as, uh, in as great a quantity as they do at intakes between sort of 1.2 and 1.6 grams per kilo per day. Mm. It's so funny what you, that's not funny what you say about um, resistance training. I see you say that all of the time as well with yeah. when you get caught up in these kind of these tweet arguments and you're like, mate, just be physically active. You know, that is actually important. Yeah. Um, does gardening count? It, so it's funny, like I just not, a, you know, minutes before we got on the show here. So I wrote a piece for the McMaster University alumni magazine. And it was essentially entitled, you know, exercise doesn't have, or exercise shouldn't be a four-letter word. Of course, it's Mm. not, but it shouldn't invoke a four-letter word. Um, And saying that basically, on an individual level, it might not feel like gardening is that big of a deal. But if if you got all Canadians or all New Zealanders or just about any population to be just a little bit more physically active, the the change at a population health level would be enormous. And so, you know, when you take someone who does little to doing not, to doing something 
there's a big change. So, um, you know, if you're in your 70s, your 80s, and whatever, it doesn't matter, 50s, 60s, and then gardening is is physical activity, and it has an impact. Um, better if you can do more gardening, or better if you can go for a walk, or even better if you can, and, you know, the closer you get to sort of following the physical activity guidelines, the more the benefits accumulate. After that, they begin to level off a little bit. And so then you can run 100 miles a week and you may not get much more benefit than somebody who runs, you know, maybe 20 or 30. So, but everything counts and you'd be surprised at, I think this was the message in the piece I wrote is that people will be surprised, I think, at how little they can do to achieve some type of health benefit. And it may be you know, something from a mental health perspective all the way to, you know, lowering your risk for type 2 diabetes. So everything counts, in my opinion. Yeah, yeah. And I, I have heard people say that, you know, if you took all of the benefits of exercise and popped them in a pill <laughs> and, you know, we're able to like kind of distribute it kind of population wide, that'd be you, amazing. You, you stole my thunder. That was one of the lines. <laughs> and it is, it's, it's a trite thing to say, but uh, yeah, it's, it's almost embarrassing to talk about how good exercise is for you and, <laughs> yeah. or, or being physically active is for you. And, um, you know, but everybody says, well, you got to do it. And that, and that's the, that's the tough part, right? If you gave people the choice, I think that they would say, oh, well, I'll take that pill and reduce my diabetes risk or take that statin or something. And, uh, you know, unfortunately, from my perspective, anyway, unfortunately, prevention would be worth more than the pound of the cure or the minimization of risks through drugs. But um, I'm sure I'm preaching to converted, but. Yeah, yeah, completely. Um, now, Stu, I've, what I've seen of, of recent years as well is that, you know, there's been, a, I mean, there's been a ton of research on intermittent fasting, on mm. um, longevity, and with it, the calorie restricted diets. And we've seen lots of research in and around mice models um, and to, or to show that you give a mouse a low protein calorie restricted diet, they're going to live like 30% longer. And in addition to that, you've got researchers in the field who, who have um, kind of trialed these low protein approaches and now advocate for a low protein approach. And it's, you know, it's out there in um, mainstream as well. You've got the fasting mimicking diet. Uh, Prolon is I think a company that produces that food and, and to help make it easy for people. But what I've seen from, you know, some of the, the stuff that you've put out there is that you're in a disagreement that a low protein approach will extend longevity. So can you just talk us through some of the, so why there is research to suggest that it does, yeah. but then also what are some of the flaws in that? And so what are your thoughts? So to start, I, I think that, you know, the point I, I like to make is that, um, First, the research that's been done around, you know, as you said, fasting mimicking diets or caloric restriction, longevity and everything else like this is it's impressive science. It's it's, it's mm. very, very well done. It's done by some very smart people. And I wouldn't be dismissive. I wouldn't I'm not roundly dismissive of their findings um, because it's done in rodents, for example. I think, you know, rodents are mammals. And so there's reason to believe that there's some sort of carryover associated with what they see. and uh, different animal models, uh, all the way from you know fruit flies to to, to mice and on, on upwards. 
Um, the, the hard part in translating that to humans is to think about the complexity of the environment in which humans live. And, you know, the current global pandemic offers a little bit of insight into some of the things that humans face that lab animals never do. So mm. one is um, the threshold moment for most older people is, you know, aging is going to get you. There's there's a aging clock. And, you know, so at some point we're all we're all going downhill. I'm you know, everybody says, when does aging start? And I'm like, well, you know, this year I think it's around 56 or something. Maybe next year it's about 57. 57. You know? and, and they say, what do you mean? I'm like, well, maybe that's a personal reflection, but you get my point, right? Yeah. Uh, and, I, and I said, but look, you know, uh, what we're trying to do is if this is aging is trying not to age like this uh, and trying to, you know, slowly age and, and, and age successfully or, or well, what happens in the person who has what we call a disuse moment? So if they're in hospital or if they get sick or something, then they have a sudden decline. And older people, as a, young people, they would sort of do this and then they recover. Older people go down and they actually never really get back up. They they mm. Now they're on a different trajectory and a different sort of series, if you like, of declines, and it's much more rapid. So things like this pandemic and sitting around and being physically inactive, worse yet, layer on top, diabetes or, you know, hypercholesterolemia or cardiovascular disease, mental health issues, et cetera, et cetera, then those events become pretty nasty. They're watershed events for older people. And lab animals never have those. And mm. the reserve that you draw from in those times is, is basically muscle. It's, yeah. it's a labile pool of amino acids. And particularly if dietary intake as it traditionally does when you're sick, it drops. Um, you know, I, I hate to talk about it, but all the people in the ICU right now are either being fed through, you know, nasogastric tubes or, or through uh, total parenteral nutrition. You, you simply can't keep up with their requirements for protein. And you look at how much muscle mass they lose, and it's mm. it's enormous because that's your reserve. So your functional reserve that sustains you through those periods if you're a human being is actually mostly muscle mm -hmm. and the recovery from that which is the hard part um requires that you have a decent reserve so it's better to sort of you know plan to uh try and beat out these periods and recover as best you can um but no lab animal ever has that and the one point I always make, and I, and I say this, uh, I had a great conversation with uh, somebody on a podcast last week, is they say, but 30% you know, extra. And I said, that's fine. Who wants to live to be 120 and feel yeah. like they're 120? Yeah, you that's know? a good so, yeah. You know, part of me, and again, not to be too trite, will say, you know, I'll I'll, I'll take 90 and, and a good quality of life. And if I go to sleep and no, like, that's, you know, that's like magic, you know, it's sort yeah. of, yeah, but if you want to live an extra 15 years and spend them in, in poor health, um, because we we're, we're extraordinarily good at end stage treatment of uh, various diseases mm. and, um, you know, that that's okay. Uh, but I'll take the quality over the quantity. So I think until we've sort of figured out, how to keep me feeling good. But I still think that exercise is like, you know, you can talk about anti drugs and caloric restriction and all this sort of stuff. 
And I'm like, you know what? Exercise forgives a lot of sins and and, yeah. and I'll live that way and, yeah, yeah. and try and maintain my physical mobility, hopefully my cognitive function and everything else. And, you know, live to the longest I can and the fullest life I can. But, uh, you know, caloric restriction in animals is associated with, you know, low body temperature, aggressive behavior. They, they, uh, I don't know whether this is important or not, but they don't, they don't want to mate. It's not important, mm-hmm. you know, so I don't know if that has any translation, but the point is they're not happy animals. So yeah. but they might live longer. Um, yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Uh, yeah. I'll, I'll take the uh, sticking around for maybe a shorter period of time, being in good health and trying to maintain a reserve and a buffer against these events, which are, you know, not inevitable, but incur with increasing frequency as we get older. Yeah, completely. You're right. Being miserable is not fun. <laughs> so well, you make it yeah, yeah. And we all have an example, though, of an older person. And we have a guy that, you know, I run a, a community access center for it's over 500 people, the average age of which is 70. And there's one guy in there and he just rolled over 103 years old, right? So we all have this one person still comes into the gym and he's still sharp. And, and, I, and, and I, I'm like, what's the secret, you know? Yeah. And he's like, oh, nothing special. And, and it's true. Like they, it, there's nothing that you can point to um, other than maybe having a, a good mom and dad with a great set of aging longevity genes. Yeah, totally. Stu, is there ever any reason to have periods of low protein? And I think I asked this because you see different yeah. things out there in the, in the, um, you know, in social media and, and mm. blog posts and stuff. Whereas from an evolutionary perspective, we wouldn't have always had access to, to protein. So is there any evolutionary advantage or, or uh, basis or just in general to have lower protein? Yeah, th- there may be some merit to that, and and it's almost this is a little bit sort of like this periodic or intermittent fasting idea. And I, you know, I, I don't think that there's any way that I would sort of say this is a long term thing that you want to do all the time. But periodically to cycle through, you know, fasts or periods where you go lower protein, um, mm. I, I don't think is a bad idea. Although interestingly, and it's you know Walter Longa who's one of the guys behind this sort of protein modified fast, one of the things that they have added back in that wasn't in the original was actually a protein refeed after these low protein periods. So realizing that actually you need to recover from that, whether that's to do with probably immune function, but it may be to do with protein reserve as well. But there may be some merit in um, in, in doing something like that. All of those periods, I think they serve to, it's essentially to me, it's like tightening the system up they make the system yeah. more efficient and the recycling of damaged proteins and you know you pick your favorite theory of aging goes better when you know you're forced to you know under a little bit of stress but too much stress and the system crashes so it's a fine line so you know you want to do one of the one or two of those periods a month i think it's good uh, not a bad thing but if you want to keep doing it i i, I struggle with that i'll be honest yeah, and um, I was um, chatting to Mark Matson last mm. week, and he's you know done a lot in that intermittent fasting space. He's yeah. got this great graphic when he shows the uh, the, the 
the similar benefits with fasting and exercise that, that mm-hmm. you get from, you know, yeah. in all of your kind of physiological systems, but then also how important that recovery piece is. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. yeah and so that's the, you can almost divide my career in half to the first half we talk to younger people and athletes about recovery and, I, and and we you know everybody's obsessed with the workout and i said but actually all the good stuff happens when the workout stops and you recover yeah. and repair yourself and get ready for the next workout and all it is now is you know recovery for for people like myself who when once we're getting a little older has less to do with trying to repair yourself and get yourself ready for that next workout but, you know, my event horizon is now years down the road. I, you know, people say, what are you working out for? I'm, I'm, I'm working out to, to try and stay well and age well at this point in my life. Yeah, totally. And just as a tangent, I'm started. I'm following a gym program put together by a 23 year old. There you go. And um, and that's a 30 day <laughs> program. And I look at it and I'm like, this is going to take me 10 weeks because I need this extra two days in between all of those workouts just to recover. Um, yeah, that's the one thing that uh, people say. What's the most conspicuous change that you've noticed uh, with aging? And I I say, you know, it's recovery. Like it yeah. just doesn't happen as fast. Um, joints begin to hurt, which never hurt when I was younger. Soft yeah. tissue, I think, recovers about the same for the mm-hmm. most part. But yeah, mm-hmm. like the next day after you've done it, you're just like, oh my lord, you know? Yeah. So you're, I, I don't, I go lighter. <laughs> I don't yeah, do as yeah. much hard work. Yeah. yeah. Um, and on that recovery piece, Stu, the um, how important is it to get protein? In that recovery period, how have our thoughts changed around that? And what is important with regards to recovery and protein intake? Yeah, so I, I, I think, uh, you know, the pragmatic message, if I'm talking to athletes, I say three R's in recovery. So rehydration, you got to get your fluids back. Refuel for most high-end athletes, um, it, that's carbohydrate and repair. And then that's mm. the protein or remodel if you want. And that's the protein part. Uh, I think that the message has changed a little bit over the last 20 or 30 years. When I first got into this, it was, you know, the immediate post-exercise window was important and needed to get, you know, your carbs and your fluid and your, you know, and now we're, we've backed off that a little bit and said that uh, exercise does make your muscle sensitive to nutrients, but it's not that immediate you know, you need to drink it in the the first hour or, or eat it in the first hour. So I think it's more like any time in this sort of the, the ensuing 16 to 18 hours, which is, you know, mm. you don't have to walk around with the shaker bottle uh, um, in the gym. You can, you know, wait until the post-exercise period, get yourself a meal, and it'll do all the tricks and, and everything that you would uh, hope that it does. Yeah, nice. And someone also asked a question about um, protein distribution across the day. So, mm. you know, certain foods deliver um, a particular amount of protein. Is it, you know, how should that look for people? Yeah, uh, great question. Uh, I wish I could give you like a super clean answer. I'll say it's a little bit, um, you know, I always talk to my students about uh, trying to find the signal in the noise. Mm. And um, there's a lot of noise. And uh, the hard part to find the signal is probably that it's pragmatic for me to say that every eating opportunity, particularly if you're physically active, is an opportunity to recover, quote unquote, unless you're exercising. Yeah. And in that sense, and maybe from a you know weight control satiety perspective, it's pretty clear that protein occupies the top 
you know, rung on the ladder. In other words, mm. you eat it, you feel satiated, you feel full, and you're you're satisfying that recovery drive as well. So it does make some sense to distribute your protein across breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and maybe one other meal or eating occasion. Um, but we've sort of backed off of the, you know, lots of small meals, or as some people do it these days, one big meal in the day. I don't think either of those is optimal. Not that it's mm. bad. It just, it's not really the way that I would prescribe from a, you know, if I was talking to somebody wanting to climb on the podium in, in Tokyo, um, it would be three meals, try and get protein in each one of them, try and make it high quality protein, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, but for mere mortals, it may matter a little bit less. So, uh, but mm. the one protein meal of, of the day where I do think, particularly as people get older, where they begin to gravitate much more towards carbohydrate that I think could be more protein driven is breakfast. Yeah. Um, and that's the first meal. It's sort of, it's the one that kind of sets the tone, if you like, or patterns the rest of the day. And that should contain actually a decent amount of protein, at least I would say for most people between 20 and 30 grams. And that, that's a lot of protein for most people at breakfast, I'll be honest. Yeah. And so how would you recommend they get it? <laughs> what do you say? Do you make recommendations or do you go talk to the dietitian? I, well, you know, and, and, and in fairness, I'm, I'm not a dietitian. Um, I rely on them heavily whenever I can because they're way better at doing that than, uh, than I ever could. The go-to foods and the ones that we give, you know, older people license, if you like, um, we say, like, it's okay to have an egg or two mm. eggs even. Mm. And most older people will say, oh, cholesterol. And I'm like, mm. yeah, I say to the, the folks in the center, I'm like, you're 85, you know, cholesterol's <laughs> Like it's not, it's the last thing you got to worry about, or even if you're yeah, 75, yeah. for goodness sake. So eggs, uh, very um, nutrient dense, good sources of protein. Dairy is another one. Uh, Greek style yogurt, it's a little bit higher in protein has been a real go-to food um, and a few other sort of tweaks here and there. But I, I think most people can say, yeah, yeah th those are, those are breakfast foods. I could, I could do that. And it's not every day, but like to say, well, if you're not going to do it here, maybe think about getting it at lunchtime. If it's not lunchtime, most people get more than enough at dinner. Um, yeah. And I say, you know, think about taking some of that protein here and about how you could distribute it more evenly across some of the meals in a day. Yeah. Is it possible to eat too much protein, Stu? <laughs> yeah, well, that's, yeah, that's a big question. It's a little bit loaded. Um, there's probably three three main things where people say you're getting too much. Uh, for a long time, people said protein causes your blood to become acidic and mm -hmm. that causes calcium to come out from your bones in, in, a, in an attempt to neutralize the acidity. And so it makes your bones weak and, and mm. that's untrue. So yeah. um, as long as you're getting enough calcium and enough uh, vitamin D to use your hemispheric pronunciation, or mm -hmm. vitamin, doesn't matter where you are, um, then protein is actually bone supportive. It's, it, you know, 40% of your bones mass is made up of protein. And I think mm. most people think it's just a stick of chalk and it's, it's actually collagenous protein. Yeah. And the other one, you know, the big one that most people can, can rhyme off is protein causes your kidneys to fail. Mm. And all I'll say is, you know, that's been around for probably 60, 70 years is what's called the Brenner hypothesis. And um, we've done systematic reviews. Other, other 
lab groups have done systematic reviews to look for evidence that that actually is occurring in humans and have found none. Mm-hmm. So, you know, and people say, well, absence of evidence isn't evidence of absence. And I'm like, fair enough. But it's now been 60 or 70 years. We're still searching for a causative role for protein. And they say, oh, but, you know, people with chronic kidney disease or end stage kidney failure are on low protein diets. And I'm like, that's true. But that doesn't mean that the protein caused their kidney failure. Yeah. So I'm, yeah. I'm quick to point that out. And the last one and the more recent one is um, protein causes release of a growth hormone called insulin-like growth factor. Yeah. And insulin-like growth factor promotes tissue growth and uncontrolled tissue growth is, is obviously cancer. Yeah. And so protein promotes cancer. I've said it for too long now. It's almost embarrassing. But we have data... <laughs> We've got to publish it clearly. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. Once we get it out there, that will show that actually we, when we look, uh, we can find no association between uh, protein intake and cancer. So that's where yeah. I have to leave that one. But. Yeah. Yeah. That's really interesting because of course, with that cancer um, protein link, that's what I see a lot of people are hanging their hats on with regards to yeah. the low protein intake, right? Sure. Yeah. 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 And, and, there- and, and and there's there there is some decent science behind that, and 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 yet when you look in, in totality of all of the observational studies that, where people have said this much protein, this much cancer, and try to associate the two, uh, it's really difficult to actually find a consistent message in those uh, in those papers. So mm. you know, my sense is that if there is an association, it's very weak. Um, or it's just sort of some signal that's arising in the noise because of the massive numbers of some of these studies. But I've said it too long now. I'm like, we have data. And I'm like, yeah, well, we got to produce that data. It's sitting somewhere down here. (laughs) In your bunker. (laughs) Waiting to be written or something like that. It's got to get on the list of projects. But yeah, it, it, it needs to be addressed in a robust fashion, but it's, uh, we, we, we just can't find the, the link between the two. Yeah. And, um, just to ask a final question in and around that I've seen recommendations for low protein intakes or particularly low animal protein intakes for people who are recovering from cancer. Do we, mm. do you know if we know anything about that? <sighs> yeah. So my take is again, is that it's, it's probably very cancer type specific. You know, people I think sort of have the sense, you know, what cancer is, but you know, there's so many different types of cancer that respond in so many different ways, some of which really draw on your protein reserves. So they, they cause you to lose muscle mass. And there's a, you know, most people have heard of protein sort of wasting as a result of aging and people you know are beginning to understand that's sarcopenia but there's a condition known as cachexia which is really rapid loss of of muscle mass that's associated with certain types of cancers but there are other cancers that don't really touch that at all so Mm. you know i think that the ethos of you know if you're recovering from cancer you should eat lower protein may be true for certain types of cancers maybe not others. I, I yeah. And again, I hate to sound like a broken record, but the, the one thing in recovery from cancer that you could do, and we have a program in our center for this group of patients is to be physically active. And mm. the way I look at recovery from cancer is a lot like, you know, 50 years ago, 
when we first convinced cardiologists that people after a cardiac event needed to have some type of physical rehabilitation. Now that's, yeah. that's de rigueur standard treatment. And I think that actually recovery from radiation, chemotherapy, or, you know, that sort of, you know, bombardment to your body is actually, those patients are almost another group that could be rehabilitated with exercise and maybe some prudent dietary choices, not always higher protein, maybe mm. lower protein. And uh, but just some care and attention because survivorship with certain cancers now is is pretty good. And, yeah. you know, those people, they, they get diagnosed and they survive for a long time. So it's now yeah. it's it's almost a chronic disease now and it should be treated that way. Yeah. Nice. Thank you, Stu. Um, so you mentioned quality protein should be the um, focus for us in our meals, particularly breakfast. Can you describe, like, what is quality protein? Yeah, there's, there's two things that define uh, protein quality. The first is, and this is a fundamental truism, and I, I know I'm going to probably upset some people, but it, this is just bio, you know, this is the way the world evolves, right? So plant protein is not as bioavailable as animal source protein. And there's yeah. no arguing that. Plants contain fiber, it's a fundamentally non-nutritive substance. It tends to interfere with digestion. Uh, we're not as efficient at uh, uh, digesting and breaking down protein in the presence of fiber. Take the fiber out of a plant, and so now we can talk, you know, individual protein, uh, like a soy protein isolate or a pea yeah. protein isolate, these sorts of things. And now the quality refers to the amount of the amino acids that are in the protein that are essential. There's 20 mm. amino acids. We need to have nine, and animal proteins have more of these essential amino acids than do plants. Mm. Having said that, um, you know, now in this sort of very plant-driven uh, era, for a lot of reasons, not just a sort of speciation argument, as it used to be 20 years ago, it was an animal rights, animal cruelty, et cetera. Now it's driven by environmental issues and lots of other, you know, just things that I can't even talk about. So the main point is now is that a lot of these these plant-based proteins that we're isolating, we're finding that actually some of them are not bad in terms of their mm. essential amino acid profile. So it, it it all depends on you know what you're talking about, but animal source proteins from foods, so yogurts, dairy, eggs, meat, that sort of thing, are what I refer to as nutrient-rich sources of proteins. In other words, you know, three ounces of beef is a good serving of protein, but it contains iron, it contains zinc, it contains B12, it contains all, a lot of other nutrients that uh, oftentimes, particularly older people, tend to under-consume. So mm. not that you can't do it with plants, but I think the message is you have to be judicious about how you plan your, your meals and not that mm. you can be cavalier and eat steak all the time, mm. um, but one one three-ounce serving of, a, of meat, for example, is you have to eat a fair amount of plant-based protein to, to get all the same nutrients. So that's one consideration I think people need to be aware of. Yeah. And you mentioned how now there's more research on those isolated proteins. So you mm -hmm. stripped it of the fiber. So does that then mean that it's a more even playing field? So if someone wants to uh, adopt or is adopting a vegetarian approach, if they're including foods that have these isolated proteins be it shakes or you know the corn products yeah. or whatever yeah. those i don't know if that's um a thing in a canada um 
are they much more likely to hit their amino acid requirements if they include these things? Yeah, yeah, in short, yes. You know, um, mm. I, I think that once we've sort of, you know, you say remove the anti-nutritional compounds, the, the the protein powders out there. I mean, soy's been around for a long time, and it's yeah. a very high quality plant-based protein. But now you've got pea, now you've got rice, now you've got lots of things. Corn is a is a, a fermented, uh, you know, mm. fungal protein source, very nutrient dense, and obviously contains a lot of other things. Uh, but it also contains a bit of fiber as well because it's a plant yeah. source, and they don't they don't clean that up. That just comes as the as the protein content of the of the fermented um, fungus itself. So it's a little bit different. But in short, yeah, I mean, we published a study. Um, let's see, we uh, I was involved in helping a, a group of Brazilians publish one of their papers, which. Um, we basically got everybody up to 1.6 and we made everybody lift weights for about 10 weeks yes. and the same amount of muscle mass gain if you were vegan vegetarian, but you were obviously hitting the same protein dose because of things like soy protein powders and shakes. Mm -hmm. So once you get to that, it doesn't matter whether it's plants or animals or you know, an omnivorous mix. Yeah. Okay. So, cause I did have a question set from a guy I'm so vague, aren't I? I have no, I can't even recall his name, but I remember him asking. So, is it bad for me to consume soy protein? Yeah, <laughs> most. So, so the um, the illusion of the the badness of soy protein comes from the fact that, and and this is, I, I'm never. Uh, surprised on social media anymore. I used to when I first got on there, and people would ask questions. I'm like. Is this still a thing? And but yeah. so soy keeps coming up and keeps coming up, and uh, it's it's been known for a long time that uh, you know Asian women who consume lots of soy from a young age, um, when they reach the age of menopause, they really don't have menopause like Western women do, mm. and it's because of these phytoestrogen uh, or isoflavone compounds that uh, sort of mimic estrogen. But it's the, the belief is is that you probably have to be consuming it for some time. And so a man hears estrogen and it's like, that's, that's a, that's a woman's hormone. I, I don't need any yeah, of yeah. that, you know? Um, and, and it, it'll sort of, you know, it'll turn me into a woman quote unquote. And, you know, I'm obviously over exaggerating anyway, the feminizing properties of, uh, compounds and soy protein are always a great fear. And there's, um, there's a little bit of miss and even disinformation, I think with, uh, some people, uh, and the long story short is there's there's no no truth to that. So soy soy protein, very good for you. Uh, it has a heart health claim in the United States, which some people obviously rail against. Uh, yeah, lots yeah. of uh, claims for anti-cancer properties, probably a lot of which have to do with um, consuming soy for a large part of your lifespan. So if you look at um, incidences of certain types of cancer in Southeast Asia, for example, they're much lower, um, but it, you know they've been eating soy protein from day dot, right? And it's yeah, just yeah. not something that at least North Americans and or South Americans, and I'm sure people in the Australasian uh, area as well uh, consume a lot of. But Southeast Asia, it's just part of the mainstream diet. Mm, mm, no, that's awesome. Thank you. Um, so, what do we know about? increasing muscle growth and consuming protein right before bed. Is this something that we want to be doing if we, if we want those gains? Yeah. So this is a recommendation. Uh, I reserve this one for um, some of the higher end athletes that are looking yeah. 
really looking to sort of, I, I always use the analogy to say that um, benefit is like dipping a, a, a cloth in water. And so the first benefit comes, and this is somebody who's not done that, you know anything, and you say, take exercise, and a lot of water comes out of the cloth. And now you're like, yeah. do more exercise. And so you got to twist a little harder and not, not as much water comes out. You know, the pro athletes are the, the creme de la creme. And they're really trying to squeeze that last, like, so that the cloth twisted in and on itself. And they're trying to do this. And, I don't, you know, in my opinion, anyway, uh, pre-sleep protein is really a, the last few drops out of the, the cloth. Okay. Uh, so for mere mortals, um, uh, it's not something I, I think that they need to do. Um, I've learned a lot recently and through osmosis and listening to people and and now when you think back on it and really begin to sort of look at the way some athletes train, uh, sleep is a mm. huge deal. And mm-hmm. for some athletes, they, they say when they do it, they say, I'm like, oh, I slept like a baby. And others are like, I didn't sleep well at all. So it's a, I think it's a little bit personal as to a, probably when you eat and mm. you know, inc- how close to bedtime. How big is the meal? What type? You know, lots of other things. So through some type of self-experimentation, you can probably figure it out. And if it doesn't interfere with your sleep, I think to me is a more important consideration than should I do it because of what it can offer me in terms of recovery. Mm. Um, And so I I try and balance those two things out. And there are some athletes, I know they swear by it. And others that are just, uh, you know what, it's it's not really for me or I find if I eat my dinner and then go to bed two to three hours later, that's more than enough. And I would probably agree. Yeah. And I often uh, talk to people about the overall protein load of the diet as well. So if you're running low on protein, then maybe you do want some protein before you go to bed, maybe because it's the total protein that might be most important rather than, you know, what time of the day you're having it. Yeah, and I I couldn't agree more. I think it's uh, you know if you're if you're low low low, and then all of a sudden you're like, oh, okay, we'll have a feeding opportunity, and it's you know it happens to be a pre bedtime snack, then why not try and uh, make the most of it? So I'm I'm not opposed to it, mm. but if you're you know if you're doing breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and then it's an it's a fourth eating opportunity, and I ha- like when I talk to athletes, I'm like, yeah, go for it, try it. Yeah. It should be bigger because you're sleeping for well usually at least eight or the, the nuclear eight hours yeah. and, um, and maybe that's the way to do it. But, um, I'll, you know, I, I don't do it. I, I'll just yeah. say that. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I am very much the mediocre mere mortal in the middle. So <laughs> <laughs> you like, re- you're representative of, of like the 99% trying, of us. I'm trying to be. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, now is there any, like, what are the satiety difference in the protein? So, so are there differences in terms of how satisfied we feel depending on what we eat with regards to protein? Yeah. So, so my learning in this, it's not, it's not my research area. You know, mm. a, a really great part of my job, I'll, although for the last 14 months, I haven't gone anywhere, but is, uh, has been to go to some really great conferences and sit around and, and have a, a nice dinner usually and then listen to some really bright people. So mm. it's usually uh, there's a protein, maybe an aging person. Sometimes that's me, but you know, maybe it might be Luke Van Loon, who's a good friend mm. of mine. And then there's another protein and satiety person. So 
you know, that can be one of, and I won't name names, but there's about four that I know and I listen to, and I think that they're sort of the, at the top of their game. And their, their message is, is that definitely when we stack protein, carbs, and fat up is that there's a, the satiety value with protein is the highest. There's no doubt mm. about that. Within the proteins, it's much, that's a much gr- more granular question as to how satiated they make you. And I think that it's more a question of the mechanisms might be related to how fast the protein is digested. So, you know, whey protein, which comes from milk, really rapidly digested. Mm. Casein protein, which is the curd portion of the milk, uh, slowly digested. Um, cooked eggs, slowly digested. And, and mm. you know, other proteins variously in between. But sorting out you know, hierarchy within proteins, much more difficult, but definitely protein, um, carbohydrates and fat somewhere down a little further down the list. Mm, mm. And that actually um, reminds me of stuff I've seen in and around the um, uh, like mixed meals and our ability to to digest protein from mixed meals. And so you yeah. see that there might be a requirement for leucine at each meal. Does that change depending on whether you're having straight leucine or whether you're having it within, you know, a meal? So how does that differ? Yeah, uh, great question. Uh, and again, I, I wish there was a an easy. Oh, yeah, it's you know we know the answer to yeah, that. Yeah. So first, I think you know the, the the leucine idea is is now I'm beginning. When I first sort of saw that, I was like, wow, can that be as dependent on leucine as uh, you know as I think? then work with uh, collaborators, Luke being one of them, Phil Atherton in the UK, um, it's pretty clear that leucine is the one essential amino acid. It's sort of, you know, I always say to people, you know, building protein is like a brick wall. You've got amino acids or bricks coming in at one end, but then you're pulling bricks out at the other end. And people, that's, why would you do that? And I said, well, actually, Mm -hmm. it provides a constant turnover and maintenance of the wall, if you like. And if that's your body tissue, that's good. Mm. Um, and the one brick that sort of gets everything going is, is leucine. Mm. Um, so y- you're right. Uh, isolated proteins, we, 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 we're pretty sure we know the story. You know, so whey protein, big leucine spike, rapidly digested. Protein synthesis starts. We start building the wall, reconditioning protein, no problem. Slower digested proteins, maybe not as quick, but sustained building of the wall. Mixed meals are much more difficult to interpret because now we've got carbohydrates, we've got fats, we've got protein. Mm. Your stomach takes longer to digest things. Certain things come out of your stomach earlier. Fat tends to flow to the top and, you know, takes a while to get out. Uh, Much more difficult to decipher and we're going to have to do some better work on that. But again, uh, you know, the proof in the sort of long-term effects of some of these higher protein diets is there. Uh, in terms of repairing and generating muscle mass, it just it takes a long time to do, mm. and um, we, we need to do a better job with those studies. So more, more research to be done. Okay, okay, good. Um, and what about gender differences, Stu? So I've seen yeah. out there that that woman that the, the leucine signal for women in the brain is dampened, so we need more. I've seen that. And I've also seen, I, I've seen research to show that women eat more protein in the luteal phase, but I haven't seen very good research, or at least what I thought was a lot of research to show that we actually require more protein. So what do we know and what, what don't we know? 
All right. It's it's embarrassing, as as most people in medical science and physiology will tell you, to talk about you know, differences between men and women because. You know, for years, we just assumed that you would study men and women would be just like men, right? They're just sort of, you know, feminine versions of men, which is completely <laughs> yeah. untrue, right? So, yeah. uh, you know, as, as a man, uh, yes, we've, we've done a poor job studying women. I think some fundamental truisms are that if you're a young man or a younger woman, and by younger, I mean premenopausal being sort of the watershed with the change in hormones in women, uh you're not too far different. In other words, yeah. young women, uh, you know, boys and girls, everybody's the same. Puberty hits uh, boys, uh, they turn into men, but they obviously go through a testosterone surge that women don't. Um, but women begin to establish a menstrual cycle and, and, and things differ, obviously. Um, but from an anabolic perspective, once you've had this divergence and you're talking, you know, 18, 19 year old uh men into, or young men into men and young women into women, uh, they're pretty much the same. They respond to protein very similarly. There might be some minor differences between menstrual cycle phases. So whether it's uh, follicular or luteal, pretty small in my opinion. Mm. Once you get to menopause, we're beginning now to realize that the loss of estrogen is not just a problem for uh, bone it's a problem for muscle as well. So it's mm. an anabolic stimulus that's lost in women and it's declining in men if you believe in, you know, andropause and declines in testosterone. Um, and there's there's probably reason to suspect that older women, uh, postmenopausally anyway, their, their basal rate of protein turnover is a little bit elevated and they're a little bit resistant to protein feeding, um, whereas older men can be made to look like younger men if they're more physically active. Mm. What we do know, and we've done some work in this, uh, is that even with older women, they can respond to leucine, but probably require higher doses. How much higher? I don't know, which mm. would seem to indicate to me at least, and there's there's some evidence for this, that older women may be at a, a sort of a disadvantage from a protein perspective, and so should should focus a lot more on protein quality Mm. Um, and, and not, maybe not overall quantity. So, and again, you got to be physically active and everything works better. Right. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah, true. And I've seen people, um, uh, practitioners in this space recommend, um, you know, if appetite is lower for some people and it's more difficult to get that protein load in to actually have, um, the easiest thing that they get their hands on is branch chain amino acids yeah. to, up the amount of leucine so to have a BCAA drink in addition to your meal. What do you think about that, Stu, as a as a practice? Yeah, so branch chain amino acids are, you know, they've sort of survived the test of time. They've been around for long enough. And you know, in my opinion, the reason why they have is they do offer some sort of recovery benefit, but it's a it's a property that rests solely on leucine. Yeah, so yeah. the other two branch chains actually are are immaterial. And in most branch chain formulations, it, the, the leucine is high and the other two are lower. And for yeah. reasons that people, they go, oh, well, you just, you know, you need less of those. And I'm like, well, actually, they, they don't do anything. They, they, okay. They're just along for the ride. So they're yeah. a category of, of amino acids of which leucine is one, but it's really the one that the does, one. does the work. And the yeah. other two are just there. 
Um, but I would, I'd be the first to admit to say, you know, people say, well, what about leucine supplements? And I'm like, yeah, okay. If you're, you're really, you know, that far into it, I'd like to, you know, offer you a whole protein first before just saying leucine, because you do need the other essential amino acids and leucine, you know, well, people don't taste these things, but I have, it's hmm. the, it's the bitterest amino acid of all of them. Mm. And so mm. it doesn't taste good at all. So I, I'd mm. much rather say, you know, people say, should I take a branch chain? I said, don't worry. It's really leucine. That's the key. Oh, should I take leucine? And I said, well, if it were, it would be better if it were leucine in the context of a high protein food source and, and whey mm. protein is always the one that comes to mind. So. Mm, mm, okay. No, that's good. Um, now Jim asked a question. I've got Jim's name right in front of me about oh, cool. branch chain amino acids yeah. and, you know, what is the the usefulness, if any, of endurance activities? If so, if someone's doing like an endurance event, five to six hours, do branch chain amino acids help support energy? Uh, yeah. Uh, so th- that's um, it's an interesting question. There's sort of two answers to that. One is is that protein as a fuel source during endurance activity is it's pretty small. Um, mm-hmm. Although you know if you're go- you're going out for a long ride and you know, I'm sure some of uh, your listeners are, you know, they hop on a bike and it's, you know, three and four hours in the saddle on a Saturday or a Sunday or something like that, or, or a long run. That's, you know, everybody does their long run or a, or a big, you know, uh, long CrossFit workout or something. And people always ask, well, what about branch chains in that sort of situation? And I'm like, I, I, I tend to say, you know what, I'm, I'm not sure it's worth it. You'd be better mm. off just getting some fluids and some electrolytes. And if you really out there, then I think, you know, like a sport drink would be uh, more than adequate. Um, The other, there was a theory that's sort of been bashed around for a long time called the central fatigue hypothesis. And it, you know, it goes something like, you know, the more tryptophan goes into your brain, the more serotonin you make from the tryptophan. And if you eat branch chains, it can compete with the uptake uh, with your brain for, for tryptophan. And so lower that. And I think probably the takeaway has uh, been very difficult to show that that's the case. Ah, yeah. So, yeah. I, and, and fortunately, it sounds great. Little, yeah, yeah, I know. It, and, and there, you know, I've, I've actually even, uh, I've written some papers on this and, and done a few talks on it and some people swear by it, but the, you know, the problem with the central fatigue hypothesis, i.e., you know, I'm feeling fatigued is, you know, is the placebo effect. Right. So I'm, um, yeah. Let's just say when people do it in a blinded fashion, it's difficult to show. Now, I think as with everything else out there, and if you're one of these people that you know they they swear by X, Y, or or Z, and and I, I say, well, you know what, if it's working for you, even though I think that's a tired and overused phrase, yeah, yeah, <laughs> I say, yeah, you know, go for it. And, and first, it, the, the the ethos is do no harm, and as yeah. long as it's not harming you, and then most people say, oh, I don't feel pretty good. And then I always ask, traditionally with the younger folks, that I say, "And how much is it costing you?" And they say, "Oh, oh it's you know, it's sixty dollars for a thirty-day supply." I'm like, ah, "Give it up, man! Drink <laughs> 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 some milk or, or something." You know, it's just yeah, that's yeah. crazy. Uh, you know, I, I I grew up and never had a ton of money around, so uh, I value the money I make, and I hope most people do. But uh, for some people, it's not an object. And obviously, when you listen to pro athletes who get the stuff given to them, 
Mm. Yeah, yeah, it's great, you know. <laughs> yeah, totally. Now, I've seen yeah. research or I've seen it being recommended for use for um, DOMS, delayed onset muscle soreness. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that, that is an area where it has been shown to have some benefits, although when you compare it, again, head-to-head with, you know, protein isolates, really yeah. no difference. So okay. uh, it, interesting, though, uh, it's still really, um, you know, this delayed onset muscle soreness. And I often joke with people, the older I've got, there's no delay in it anymore. It's just immediate <laughs> onset muscle soreness, but yeah. Uh, prolonged. Um, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Immediate and prolonged. Yeah. yeah. Uh, is, is, you know, what's really causing it. And, and we sort of have an idea it's inflammation, everything. Then why is it that, you know, one particular group of amino acids would be responsible for, for tamping it down. And I think really, you know, it's a protein-mediated effect more than it's an amino acid or group of amino acid-mediated effect in terms of the recovery aspect of it. So, uh, yeah. interesting concept, and it's out there, but I, I still would sort of rest on uh, complete protein. And that does bring me to sort of my final topic, which is that on collagen, because <laughs> I I saw like yeah. a week ago that you wrote a post that said whatever collagen does not do what people, well, it, it doesn't live up to the claims that you see out there. Um, and I think you were, you know, ref- referencing a particular uh, group of people studying it or a product that they were studying. And of course, you know, you upset a lot of people, Stu, because yeah. collagen is like a bit of a, um, it's it's riding a wave of popularity right now. So yeah, can you kind of talk me through, you know, what can we s- what do we know about collagen and what is actually overstated? Because I also have looked at a lot of the research and, and make recommendations based on it, but obviously I want to make the correct recommendations. So you might be dispelling some of my myths too. Yeah. So, so I think that there's sort of maybe two aspects to answer the question. And I maybe made a mistake in making a post about a group of papers in one post and then a, a, another separate post about the essential amino acid content of collagen, which is extremely low by comparison, let's say, to whey protein. Mm. Um, So as a structural protein, uh, collagen is missing one essential amino acid, and that's tryptophan. Now, you don't need a ton of tryptophan, I'll I'll be the first to agree, but because it doesn't have that one essential amino acid, its protein quality score is is zero. Mm. So I often sort of put it to people this way, if you were stuck on a desert island and all you had was collagen protein, after a while you become protein deficient. So mm. you, you know, you're missing, you know, one brick. You yeah. can't build the wall because there's always a hole in the wall. Yeah. And uh, so, you know, I, I sort of say to people is that there are much higher quality sources of protein than collagen. So if you're taking it to build muscle, if you're taking it to, as a building block for X, Y, or Z, then I don't think that that's particularly practice or evidence informed. Um, and I would demur with some of the evidence that's out there. And that's really what my post was about. Mm. On the other hand, a lot of people subscribe to the pain mitigating properties of, of collagen. And it is true um, that collagen contains all of the amino acids that your connective tissues might need. So when we talk about connective tissues, that's every collagenous tissue in your body. So bone, tendon, ligaments, and people, honestly, they, they swear by this as a potential, um, some people say it's anti-inflammatory. I don't know if that's the case. Other people say it's just, you know, when I take this, it gets rid of my tendonitis. Yeah. It, it increases, you know, 
joint space or it decreases joint space narrowing and you build up, you know, and there's lots of sort of, I guess I would say, I would call it vague evidence around that area. Um, that is really when you look at all of the clinical trials where they've done this, there's no significant effect. Now, you know, so that's what I use as my basis. And I'll admit my own personal experience, which has been collagen's never mitigated any pain that I have. And it's bilateral mm. for me in both knees. And it's it's never done a thing for me. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah. you know, maybe I'm influenced by that. But then when you go to evidence-based systematic reviews, um, the evidence is pretty weak. Ton of work in preclinical animal models, ton of work in uh, cell culture stuff, which people cite as evidence. And I said, it's evidence of a mechanism. It's not evidence yeah. that's clinically efficacious. Um, and again, I, I have to come back. And if pe I say to people, particularly where pain is concerned, if you're able to mitigate pain, by all means, like power yeah. to you, you know, it works for me. And there may be some people who have a degree of sensitivity to that, that that I just don't. And and that wouldn't surprise anybody these days, knowing what we know now about, you know, receptors and polymorphisms and some people responding better to certain drugs than others and better to nutraceuticals than others. That's just a biological reality. Um, the balance of evidence says that it doesn't do much of either. And okay. uh, I hate to be trite about it, but I often yeah, say yeah. to people, um, you know, protein uh, collagen protein comes from bones and, and feathers and skin. Mm, mm. Um, and before we knew that it did all these great things for humans, we sprayed it on farmers' fields for fertilizer. So um, <laughs> I'll part with that and, and say okay. you make buyer beware, make your own decision, uh, but it shouldn't cost you. And, and don't buy in. I think this is where there's a real, there's a little bit of a, you know, a shell game going on. Don't buy into this form of collagen is better than that form of collagen. Collagen is collagen is collagen is collagen. The structure remains fundamentally the same. And it doesn't matter whether you go from, uh, you know, tiny little mammals all the way up to human beings is that collagen doesn't differ very much at all. So some people say, oh, what about this 2B collagen? I'm like, it's the same as everything else. Like it's just a yeah, string okay. of amino acids essentially repeating in a regular fashion. And, you know, so that would be one thing I would say. Okay, because I've also come across recently something called rosebud collagen, plant collagen. Well, I, I you know, I, I'm never let it be said that the supplement industry couldn't come up with something that I've never heard of. Uh, I'm often <laughs> fond of saying that uh, I, I've taught for just over 20 years at the university, and I used to teach a, a third year uh, class on nutrition. Yeah, and it was mandatory that I subscribe to just about every journal that that you know, partook in the supplement industry uh, marketing so that when a student would say, what about, and they would name something. Uh, and if I didn't know what it was, I'd lose credibility. So I had to be up on everything. So yeah, uh, rosebud, rosemary, collagen? Yeah, rosebud, 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 collagen from collagen. a rosebud. Yeah, I, yeah. Have, I have no idea. I, I don't even know how a plant could have collagen, to be honest with you, but uh, you know, who, yeah, yeah, there's, there's yeah. always somebody out there you got to have a new shtick. You got to have a new twist. And, um, yeah. And, you know. and it really is serving a good, it's got a quite a good market. Cause of course it's from plants, plant-based vegan mm -hmm. up yeah. until now have been unable to have collagen supplements. So this is really filling that it gap. Clever. Strikes me, strikes me as odd. Like I said, collagen, you know, collagenous substrates come mm. from 
bone, from skin, uh, feathers, um, and not from plants, but you know, what do I know? You know, somebody I'll I'll say that and then somebody will listen and I'll get an email two days later saying, well, you remember you said that? I was like, okay. (laughs) So it's, it's nothing I've heard of. Uh, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me, but you know, vegan collagen is, uh, that's a good one. Uh, yeah, yeah, it is. I, I, I did send an email to the research and development team of this particular company. I've yet to receive a uh, response. Um, but if you do get that email, Stu, do forward it on because I'd quite like to see, I'd, I'd, I'd like to hear the argument for it. I get emails from, from people randomly every now and again, and it, it, it will often start with, I heard you on a podcast and I was like, Oh, boy, oh no. Say. So <laughs> yeah. I, I, I've, I've gotten better over the years at just sort of titrating my comments and saying, you know what? And people say, what well, works for me? And I'm like, good on you. Awesome. Power to you. you know, um, yeah. I'm glad it works for you. So, you know, it's never worked for me. Uh, and here's <laughs> yeah. the evidence. So you, you know, I don't try and change people's minds anymore. I just say, mm. here's the data. You yeah. make up your own mind, but it's it's often data that people don't want to see or read or hear. Yeah, so. and I often in I sort of segued into this collagen uh, discussion based on what we were previously talking about with regards to BCAA's in whey protein and no real mm-hmm. head to head studies. Because yeah, are there any head to head studies on collagen and whey just in terms of what they can do? <laughs> Well, well, that that's the study that appeared that prompted me to make the uh, Instagram post because it showed that collagen was better than whey protein. And uh, I just, you know, I need to suspend my disbelief on that one because I, I don't understand what the physiology behind it is. And, and, and somebody posted on the Instagram timeline, they said, well, look, there's this theory that when you break collagen down, there are specific peptides. So not individual yeah. amino acids, but short peptides that signal and are anabolic in nature. And I said, I've heard that theory and that that thesis. And look, given the current, you know, these methodologies that we have now, we, we should be able to find those peptides. So I've been hearing that theory for about 10 or 12 years now, and I still haven't seen the peptides. And so I just have to, it, it's another one of these, just ask, just show me that there's some, like, it's not yeah. hard to do. Well, are you, yeah. I mean, that's not true. Uh, with the right person and the right methodology, you should be able to detect these peptides and, and tell me what they are and that they're getting into circulation. Uh, we That same methodology was used to detect small peptides that came from whey protein that had antihypertensive properties. Uh, so okay. people who take a lot of whey, they see a lowering in their blood pressure. Mm. It, it's not huge. Um, but there's a small segment of the whey protein that does appear in circulation and um, causes blood pressure lowering. The same thing should be able to be actually with a concerted effort easily found for whey protein or excuse me, for collagen protein. So again, I'm like, okay, just cool. you know, show me a paper, show me some data. It shouldn't be, shouldn't be difficult. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Nice. And, you know, I think I'm, I know the answer to the final question, but I will just ask you anyway. Um, so if, so in collagen, you've got certain amino acids, glycine being potentially the most important one. So why would we not just supplement glycine for all of the purported benefits of collagen? Yeah. Uh, other people have made the same observation. It's an, Glycine is a non-essential amino acid. And so, you know, we could make glycine ourselves and we do make substantial quantities of it. 
a lot of people um, have models, uh, in vitro models in cells and animals, where they show on a tremendous metabolic stress that um, even non-essential amino acids could become what they call conditionally essential. Mm. Um, so the, the need for that amino acid outstrips our ability to be able to produce it. Um, I guess my question is, you know, what's the degree of, of stress that is required where that would actually happen? Um, and you, you actually have to go back about probably about 40 years to look at some studies that were originally done in humans with uh, by some of the real founding, you know, um, minds in the protein area and look at glycine turnover and stress states in human beings. And uh, it, like we're very capable of keeping up with our, our need for glycine. But you know, to your point, glycine's uh, it's almost a tasteless amino acid. It's ridiculously cheap. Uh, mm. So why do we need collagen? If all we need is glycine, then vegans everywhere would rejoice because the supplement would just be the glycine instead of having to worry about a collagen supplement. So Yeah, no, I hear you. Okay. Um, Stu, thank you. That has been, you know, you've really um, dispelled some myths that a lot of people have. You've really helped clarify some things for me as well, which I am super appreciative for. And you're, it's really interesting what you say with regards to you can't give a clean answer. And maybe that's the problem. Like when I go looking, I'm like, I can't quite figure out what's going on. Because there isn't yeah. actually that real solid evidence base for some of these things. Yeah, and I think that's people's frustrations with science. I often tell my students, you know, science is like building a house, so we got to get a good foundation first. And sometimes we make mistakes, and we have to, you know, rip down a wall or do something. And uh, it's all about building a case for uh, for evidence and getting giving an answer. But it, it's it's much more gray. Like it's so rarely black and white. So it's much more gray than most people would like. We want certainty and we're not mm. very good with uncertainty and risk and everything else like that. So it's, it's a struggle. And, and yeah. I'd be the first to admit that the diet wars haven't really helped with people's understanding of what from a nutritional perspective is truly good for them anymore. Um, yeah. So it's unfortunate that uh, maybe I, I've helped shed a little bit of light or maybe made it muddier. I'm not sure. <laughs> well, um, I think you've helped shed a bit of light and hopefully they'll let you out soon so you can continue to do what you do, yeah. which is, you know, like um, bring to us like all this stuff, all protein related. So, um, Stu, thank you so much and enjoy the rest of your day. You too, Mickey. Thanks very much for taking the time. It's a pleasure to be on the show. Alright team, I know that if you were out for a run, then you probably wouldn't have had your pen down taking notes, but hopefully you can commit some of what we discussed to memory because there's a lot of good information there. He is amazing. And in fact, I've got uh, Professor Don Lehman, I'll have Dr. Gabriel Lyon, as two other prominent forces, if you like, in the whole protein metabolism, ageing, protein for health space, both from a practitioner and a research perspective, and they'll be coming out in the next few months. However, next week, we are talking to Professor Herman Ponzer all about the human metabolism and his book, Burn, and the misunderstood science of metabolism, which was a fascinating conversation. So I'm really looking forward to you guys hearing that. Until then, though, you can catch me over on Facebook at Mickey Willardin Nutrition, over on Instagram and Twitter at Mickey Willardin, and 
over on my website, mickeywillardin.com, where you can sign up for that recipe access, which I mentioned earlier in the show, or any one of my meal plans, which will help with fat loss, a keto longevity approach, real food nutrition plan, or an athlete nutrition plan. You can also book a one-on-one consult with me. So all of those details are in links in the show notes, but also over on my website too. All right, team, you have a great week. 